I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. I'm a historian, author, aggressively fast walker, but lately in a world that promises endless progress, even now in a pandemic, I've realized I just need to be a person. It's hard to give up on the feeling that the life you want is just out of reach. If only you tried. Eat this food, find that relationship, just get the kids graduated or the parents this kind of care. Only then will I feel different, better, whole. But that's not the way this works. When I was 35, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And here's the very fun thing about that. The world loves you better when you are shiny, when you are cheerful, when you still believe that your best life now is right around the corner. I've written multiple books on the history of the idea that you can always fix your life. So I'm going to be the one to say it. There are some things we can change and some things we can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. We can have beauty and meaning, community and love, and we will need each other if we're going to tell the truth. Life is a chronic condition, and there's no cure for being human. A few years ago, I was researching megachurches and celebrity pastors when I visited the largest church in America during the season of Lent. Lent is that wonderful, terrible time of the Christian calendar when we take 40 days to walk up to Easter, when Jesus rises from the dead and death is conquered, etc., etc. But first, we take a very long time to think about everything that happens before that. Fear, death, broken justice, friends abandoning you, walking the lonely road of suffering and pain while everyone wonders why you can't be better yet. Honestly, it's the perfect time of the year to say, God, this is how it is, isn't it? Anyway, so it was Lent, the saddest time of the Christian calendar on the actual saddest day of the year, Good Friday. Jesus is dead. So, you know, it's not like a great time. And I walked into what was once a basketball arena in Texas, now Lakewood Church, run by a very nice man named Joel Osteen, who just happens to believe that God truly, truly wants you to be happy and that suffering is optional. And a very nice greeter says, happy Good Friday, with a big smile on her face. And then I went up to the escalator and another greeter chirped, happy Good Friday. And by the time I sat down, seven people had wished me the hap-happiest of days when Jesus died. Very nice people, very nice church. But... It reminds me of the wonderful quote from Martin Luther, who, I paraphrase here, said that the world wants to dress the cross in roses. We want the cruelty and terror and fear that we know is true to be dressed up, cleaned up, prettied up. Don't we just want the positive side of any equation, spiritual or otherwise? New car. Blessed. Matching family Christmas card. Blessed. Pay raise. Blessed. Well, what about exhaustion? Long hours. Caregiving. Miscarriages. Being left. Being lonely. Regret. Shame. 
There is so much we learn about the world and ourselves when we are on the downslope of life, when we are not pretending that we are not mired in brokenness. This is what I love about the season of Lent. It's honesty. So if you want to join me in that, I'll be sending out daily reflections and posting little videos to help orient us for the 40 days of Lent. You can sign up for free at katebowler.com slash Lent. One of the things I pray most regularly is, God, help me see things clearly. And by that, I mean the beautiful, the terrible. When we see things clearly, we can be moved toward action. We can reach out to that friend who's going through her treatments alone during COVID. We can meet the financial needs of people who lost their jobs, shuttered their business, or are just struggling to make ends meet. We can send encouragement to the parents who are stretched paper thin. We can offer words of gratitude to the frontline workers who are holding everything on their shoulders. There are people who see things clearly And rather than recoiling in fear or feeling stuck by the magnitude of the world's pain, they move toward it. Today's guest is one of those kinds of people. Father Greg Boyle has worked with former gang members in Los Angeles for over 30 years. He is the founder of Homeboy Industries, which employs and trains former gang members and offers free services to facilitate healing. His work has earned him the California Peace Prize, and President Obama named him a champion of change. Father Boyle is the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Tattoos on the Heart, and Barking to the Choir, and I was so excited about our interview today that I am slightly nervous right now. Father Boyle, I feel really lucky to be talking with you today. Likewise. Thank you. You were born and raised in the gang capital of the world, Los Angeles, and I love that you are Jesuit. Jesuit is my favorite kind of priest, but you were ordained in 1984. I'd love to hear about what was supposed to happen to your life. You were supposed to do something very different when you were first ordained. What was it? Uh, well, you know, I actually, I, after I was ordained, I, I went to Bolivia, and then what I had scheduled to... Uh, kind of run the service immersion program at, at Santa Clara University. Yeah. So when I came back, Bolivia had sort of turned me inside out. And so I, I, I just, uh, I, boy, I wasn't feeling it. So I mentioned that to my provincial and as luck would have it. And since I kind of somewhat spoke Spanish, yeah, he uh, said, Oh my gosh, well, I need somebody at Dolores mission. And then that kind of changed my life. I've been here now since then. And so what was it about Bolivia that that turned you inside out? Well, it, at the time, it was the poorest uh, country in the Western Hemisphere, it was poorer mm-hmm. than Haiti. And so I I was uh, I just the people were amazing. And it, uh, I, you know, I went up into the mountain. To, that's where they hadn't had a priest in years. And, yeah. and so it was it was quite, uh, you know impactful and i and the and so the the poor kind of teach you the gospel and and reveal the marrow of it to you and, and so um yeah that was life-changing for sure 
I'm completely obsessed with the history of the Jesuits, right? Like, it is no surprise to you that every order has its own flavor. But I love that the Jesuit flavor is, um, well, now I want to make it a spice, but I can't think of one. Indigenization is not a spice, but like the, the ability to like adopt and adapt to local culture, they're just like famously learners by disposition. Is that, is that kind of how you approached it where, I mean, you, you'd obviously learn Spanish that you kind of, you kind of came in order to fit in first as opposed to primarily as a teacher. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think there's a, this inclination to think if you go to the margins, now, what do you do? Yeah. But the real question is, uh, what kind of person will you become out at the margin? So <laughs> you don't go to the margins to make a difference because then it's about you. Yeah. You, you go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different. And I can remember a number of years ago, a, um, a hardcore gang intervention worker, a former gang member himself in Houston, had come up to me after a talk and he was kind of pleading with me. And he said, uh, how do you reach them? You know, meaning gang members. Yeah. And I found myself saying, well, um, for starters, you know, s- stop trying to reach them. Can, can you be reached by them? And so I think that's a little bit of what you're suggesting that in enculturation or, or, or going to other cultures, yeah. that it's not about I'm, I'm here to fix, save, rescue. But, yeah. but if, if I can allow myself to be reached by you, then suddenly everybody is entering into this exquisite mutuality yes. where we're all inhabiting our own dignity and nobility in each other's presence. So that's kind of the hope. That's why I always love the sort of history of translation, because you can't inherently keep your own categories if you have to make them into something new. Like, what is this word? Like, who, you know, what is this concept and category when I give it away? There's just something so wonderfully uh, subversive about that. Yeah, but it kind of does turn the whole thing inside out, you know, which is um, the goal. And and plus, the only reason people burn out is not because of compassion fatigue, but it's because they've allowed it to become about themselves. And they have sort of um, inadvertently insisted that somehow, you know, it's their job to fix and save and rescue. Yeah. But if, 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 you insist that it not be about you, then what you're doing is you're delighting in the people in front of you and and you're receiving people and you're allowing your hearts to be altered. And that's eternally replenishing. You, you won't ever be depleted if if you do that. But people have this misconception, I think that, Oh, I guess I'm just too compassionate as, (laughs) as, as if there is such a thing. And, and no, actually, you, you've allowed it subtly uh, yeah. to to have this be about you. And then, yeah. and then the flip side of that, of course, is then it's about success. Right. It's about measure measurable outcomes. And as soon as it's that, then then you've really entered into a, a different arena where it's um, well, it's kind of problematic because um, then then you're being driven by success rather than fidelity. Yeah, that sounds very um, 
familiar to, to me. I often think like, oh, I'll die of compassion. I will just die this way. It won't be cancer. It's for sure going to be empathy <laughs> that does me in. But I think I think you're right. It can vary. Compassion and uh, you know, outward facing, you know, acts of love can very quickly also just become uh, a kind of pride. We're like, no, no, I was going to fix this, and this is about how I decided whether it was fixed or not. Yeah, exactly right. The work that you're describing, where your parish sits in the midst of rival gangs. It, it it sounds like it meant a lot of funerals. So we had eight gangs at war with each other. And wow. I buried my first young person, an identical twin named Rafael, who was stabbed to death at, in Hollenbeck Park, not far from my, my church. Oh. So he was the first one I buried. And then that was in 1988. And then I buried my uh, 236th a young woman named Brandy. Oh. And that was uh, two weeks ago. Oh. So, um, yeah, so, and that was what I call the decade of death, which was um, 88 to 98, roughly, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, again, we still had deaths after that, and, and certainly... Uh, you know, not that much before that, actually. So that was the, the crack ep- epidemic. And then oh. the we had shootings morning, noon, and night. And once I buried eight kids in a three-week period. So it was uh, pretty pretty intense. This is a weird way to start a sentence. But um, my friend Corey has recently, uh, a pastor, most of my friends are pastors, has recently gotten onto the funeral circuit. And she used to just do weddings, like a lot of um, young, lovely idealists. And she said, you know, it's a very, uh, my work is a very different thing now. It takes a very different kind of uh, work of truth to stand beside a coffin and have something and have something to say. And I, I think what you're describing is a kind of uh, hope that, that most people would have a hard time describing. It sounds to you like one of the very first acts of, um, stubborn hope on your part was to really think about the the economic side of things. I know you said that nothing stops a bullet like a job. And uh so tell me why was it why was it hard to place gang members? What was it hard to really think about um employment uh for gang members and and what did you do instead? So the difference was um in the early years was if you listen to gang members they would say they, you know, needed a job. But once you got to know them, then you realize, oh, this is about healing. Mm. That, you know, an educated gang member may or may not go to prison or return to prison, and an employed one may or may not. But but a healed one absolutely will not go back to prison (sighs) or to gangbanging or a life of violence. So so that became abundantly clear to us and uh, by midpoint, so probably 15 years ago. And wow. so we shifted, you know. Um, yeah. So the, the, the notion of nothing stops a, a bullet like a job was kind of our old conception. Consequently, em- employers weren't willing to give people with records or tattoos a chance. Yeah. So we started our own, uh, you know, with the homeboy bakery and then homeboy tortillas. And then 
So now, you know, we're at, we have nine social enterprises. So, and they're all, uh, you know, we want to, we, we couldn't wait yeah. for, for employers to hire them. We had to, um, you know, create our own employment opportunities. And then the social services that wrapped around them. What are we talking about in particular? I, tattoo removal? What else? Yeah, well, because it became so clearly about healing. Yeah. That, you know, therapy, of course, and uh, recovery, you know, 12-step programs. And and then continuous uh, education from GED to high school diplomas. And we still have wow. a school. So we're always insisting that any of our trainees uh, are, you know, be connected to uh, some ongoing educational experience. But if the idea is that, you know, uh, a traumatized person is most likely to cause damage and trauma, then it's equally true that a, a cherished person <laughs> will be able to find their way to the joy there is in cherishing themselves and others. So. If you can create a culture and environment where they, in a palpable way, feel cherished and valued and honored, then they go home and they present that to their kids and you've broken a cycle. Yes. Wow. And it sounds to you that, I mean, just by the nature of these enterprises that you're asking people from all different kinds of backgrounds then to work alongside one another that must really extend their vision of what, I don't know, what. Yeah, so it's not only gainful employment, it's an opportunity to stand next to somebody who you used to shoot at and make croissants in our bakery. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's the added bonus. Will you walk me through what the process of rehabilitation looks like at Homeboy? Like, can you think of a person in particular? Like, where do they come from? How do they leave? I'd love to get a sense of it. Well, we don't exist for those who need help. We're only around for those who who want help. And so you mm-hmm. have to walk through the door just like any drug rehab or rehabilitation center. And then yeah. and then we drug test them and then we um, have them come to an orientation where they can see what Homeboy's about and they, they can decide if this is for them. Yeah. And then we interview them, the homies themselves interview, th- three homies interview, and then they present the recommendation to what we call the council, which is a, a group of uh, more senior homies. And so then we bring them in, and then it's an 18-month program, and the 18 months sort of corresponds to the 18 months that it takes for an infant to attach to the caregiver. So it's the same principle. Yeah. And it's also, you know, everyone comes into our, through our doors with, with a disorganized attachment. You know, mom was frightening or frightened and you, and you can't really calm yourself down if you've never been soothed. Yeah. So we provide that and, and they come barricaded behind a wall of shame and disgrace. And, and we've discovered at Homeboy, the only thing that can can scale that wall is is tenderness, which is mm. which is love that becomes concrete and real and visual, yeah, and, and tactile and 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 then love beca- is connective tissue rather than an idea. So 
but it's more the culture. This is the thing that I think a lot of programs in the country get wrong. Yeah. Because they're so intent on content, you know, like, you know, let's, let's give them information. Let's train them. Let's yeah. give them our 12 step uh, process uh, or our, our five principles or whatever it is. And, but it's really the culture that, that heals and it's and and it's the relationship in the culture that heals so yeah that's kind of the secret sauce i think at homeboy is that people um feel valued and held they feel held more than anything else yeah yeah <laughs> man that sounds a lot like a lot of the the churches and theological institutions I know. It's like, no, no, I have a 12 point power. I have a PowerPoint presentation I have prepared about correct beliefs. No, wait, stay still. No eyes on the <laughs> eyes on the screen. If I could just explain it to you, then you would change your mind and therefore job done. But I yeah, mean, the work exactly. of the work of embodiment is I love your description of connective tissue and then like, and then pulling people toward like a, a web of of love that maybe makes them gives them permission to let go of the other ties that they held really tightly to. Yeah. I mean, but we're also wide eyed about, you know, the profile of kids who join gangs, you know, people think it's about that they're drawn, they're attracted, they're pulled, they're, um, they're, they're seeking something, but the, the truth is they're actually fleeing something. And that's a key diagnostic moment because then you know, oh, they're fleeing despair. Yeah. They can't conjure up an image of tomorrow. They're fleeing the damage and enormous trauma that was inflicted on them. Yeah. And then they're probably fleeing some form of mental health issue. Yeah. Or yeah. a humble burger of all three or, or two. Yeah. So. Which is a key thing, because otherwise, if if they're being attracted to something, you know, join a gang and see the world, wine, yes. women, and song, then, then what you try to do is you try to convince a kid, don't you see the error of your way? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But the gang violence is really a language. What language is it speaking? It's the language of a lethal absence of hope. So, mm. So if that's true... As I'm convinced it is, then yeah. then you you infuse hope to kids for whom hope is foreign, and you heal the trauma and you deliver mental health services. Yeah, that's what you do. But but nobody's ever met a healthy, good treatment plan that was born of a bad diagnosis. I don't believe that's ever happened in the history yeah. of the world. Yeah. So it's important that you get the diagnosis right. Yeah. So that you can walk your way near, uh, you know, some kind of treatment plan. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, um, I'm thinking a lot about like the nature of time lately. Uh, you know, partly that's just from chronic cancer. You think a lot about horizon setting, but, uh, there's such like powerful, theological imagination for what, what you're describing so beautifully that like hope hope like sets the horizon out a little further and that when people are living in chaos and pain and despair like they just there's just not enough horizon and so it's i'm it sounds like it would just be 
they wouldn't even know where to start walking if they had the freedom to do it. Yeah. You know, and people always say, you know, everybody deserves a second chance, but I would say, well, whoever gave them their first chance. Yeah. I'm thinking of a guy who's, who's, uh, can be difficult. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and he's not a problem. He's our population, but yeah. I mean, he, he's, uh, his behavior is kind of alarming and, and, uh, he kind of can flip out on people and, but he's exactly who we need to be. But once you start to excavate a little bit, you discover that his mom gave birth to him and threw him in a dumpster. And that in somewhere along the line, maybe he was in, in foster care, you know, when he was a, a boy, you know, he, they, they set him on fire. Oh. You know, so, yeah, he's got some issues, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's like... Uh, but at Homeboy, we're not really, uh, you know, toppled by by kind of the behavior because the behavior is always a language. So we always want to understand what language it's speaking. That makes sense. And then what the what I mean, like something has to be extremely powerful to undo or to just change the the nature of what that language looks like. If you don't transform your pain, you're gonna you're gonna keep inflicting it. So you really do have to do the work, is what we call it at Homeboy, where you yeah. have to you have to look at it. You can't you can't hopscotch it. You can't yeah. sidestep it, which people do. I mean, homies do it, and sometimes in a you know, there's the usual way, which is self medicating. Yeah, but there's also you know, I've I've watched it. You know, you can see somebody dive into recovery in such a way as to avoid their wound or, or dive yeah. into embracing Jesus so as to yeah. uh, avoid their pain. Yeah. Or, or another way is the, um, you know, dive into higher education. All these things are good things. Yeah. But you want to make friends with your wound. Otherwise, you're going to be tempted to despise the wounded both outside yourself and within yourself yeah and so so it's a kind of essential thing but but along with that with therapy is also uh you know sometimes meds because sometimes people need something to float their boat otherwise they're going to take in water yes and uh, so we have all that stuff we have four paid therapists but we have 49 volunteer therapists including two psychiatrists Wow. Because folks carry more than than the average person. Yes. I love the way you're talking about the sort of math of humanity here. Like the idea that, oh, like when you said um, that if you don't, is, is it, do you say like if you don't make friends with you, the, your wound that you will despise the wounded? Is that yeah. right? It's, um, but so often whether we imagine it or not, like we need some people to be better or worse than others so that we can feel... <laughs> Like we've gotten somewhere like I, so I study like uh, cultural scripts about luck, how people decide that they're, um, they're deserving. And it totally runs counter to what you're describing. They just like, we want the meritocracy so badly so that we can just, we can map our like best life now plan. <laughs> like, no, I really got somewhere plan. No, put me in a high school reunion. I'll show, I'll show Derek <laughs> that I really made it. It's hard to get out of that. This is why Jesus said it's really hard for a rich person 
to enter into this kind of kinship. Yeah. Because and it has nothing to do with bank account. It has to do with hubris, you know. So yeah. So humility looks at the poor and says, Hey, how how could I help? Yeah. But hubris looks at the poor and says, Here's what your problem is. Yeah. And and part of the issue often with with people who are wealthy or powerful is that is they have this narrative that's just soaked with hubris and they and it's hard for them because they they struggle yeah. to be humble and you can't allow yourself to be reached by those on the margins, the widow, orphan and the stranger unless yeah. you're humble. And so, you know, everything is you know I, I grew up in the gang capital of the world, which is how you began this uh, interview. But, but you know, there was no chance that I would ever join a gang. And that yeah. has nothing to do with, with morality. It's yeah. because I won all these zip codes lottery, you know, the yeah. zip code lottery for parents and education and yeah. socioeconomic strata. I, I won all these lotteries. Yeah. And so, uh, and it's total luck, of course. Yeah. You know, and, but, but rich and powerful people have a hard time sometimes with that. I think, oh, no, bootstraps, meritocracy. I was the smartest. I was the, yeah, yeah, I worked. the morally, ethically, whatever. And I go, yeah, well, I don't know. I think probably 95% of it was just the yeah. luck of the draw. Yeah. That you weren't born in a Liesel Village housing project, but yeah. you were born in Hancock Park, Los Angeles. You love the word kin. Give me a pitch on like why we should use the word kin and think about kinship. I love it. Well, kinship is God's dream come true that we may be one. You know, it's about uh, it's about there is no us and them. It's about obliterating the illusion that we are separate. Yeah, and. Uh, and it's standing against forgetting that we belong to each other. So, yeah. So that a lot of times people think, well, God's dream come true is that you love God. Well, I mean, that's uh, it's just a human pro- projection, and I, I that's what I would want if I were God. But, <laughs> but the generosity and the spacious, expansive heart of God is that we be one, and that yeah. that's. God's dream come true. So it's exquisitely mutual. It's 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 uh, it's not me serving you even. Yes, yes. You know, or on the margins, but it's about us again inhabiting this vicinity together. And so you're always endlessly imagining a circle of compassion, and then imagining nobody standing outside that circle. So that's the goal. That's the kinship. Yeah, that's the thrust towards this uh, connection with each other. Yeah, yes. Which brings us back to what you said about like not really being able to save other people. That you're you're not out there to save gang members. That this is like that. That rescue is just like not sufficient for what this is supposed to do. Yeah, you you never do that. You just you never uh, because that's why it doesn't work. That's why. We don't make progress, and that's why, as well, that people burn out, you know? I, I'm sure you're a big fan of Dorothy Day. You just inherently 
are our Dorothy Day, so I'm sure you secretly love her. Um, I, I, I uh, you know, she's such a powerful example of someone who. Um, okay, so this is not, this is a point that uh, one of my mentors um, in American religious history, uh, Lori Maffley Kipp, said. She was like, if you read Dorothy Day, the you know, who lived in slum housing, who was involved in the labor movement, et cetera, et cetera. If you read, read her and compare her with other contemporary theological contemporaries like H. Richard Niebuhr and Reinhold Niebuhr, they talk about, uh, they both talk about precarity, the idea that like things can be given and things can be taken away, but only Dorothy talks about it. Like it's not a state to be overcome. It's not something you're trying to get beyond. Like we're not actually trying to figure out the magic of getting back to durability. That is like, it is the, it is the place we must inhabit because that's where God is. And that's, that just really reminds me of what you're describing. Yeah. She chose that, you know, she chose precariousness, you know? And so, uh, and then it, it was able to bring her some focus. So, so she's able to, you know, she, she quotes Ruskin and, who talks about the duty to delight. And in fact, there's a, a book about uh, Dorothy Day called the duty to delight. And, and so she was kind of a irascible <laughs> character, you know, so yeah. there, there wasn't, she wasn't warm and fuzzy. She kind of knew where she, where the focus needed to be with her life. She was in San Francisco in 1906 when the earthquake hit, and she was a little girl. Yeah. And her reflection on it was because she was just marvelled at how changed people. This is a kind of a good COVID thing because she just looked and watched how instantly people were galvanized to help each other uh-huh. and and pulled people out of the rubble and helped them rebuild their lives and her reflection was how how come we're not like this always you know right yeah and i thought well yeah that's kind of where we are right now you know i think i think we i think we experience the same thing in many ways you know that people are you know in this together and wanting to help each other in spite of yeah. the initial, you know, let's hoard toilet paper moment, you know, <laughs> yes. but there, then there was this thing, you know, where people, I'm finding people remarkably, it has galvanized generosity in people. Uh-huh. And that was her experience was she looked at it and she said, yeah, if, if only we could uh, carry this into the next moment, you know? And then all of a sudden, like, uh, the sameness has advantages like, Oh, maybe I'm in pain. And maybe that like it, it moves us into a kind of kinship you're describing. Yeah, it's a little, it's, it's, it's different than other things that hit us, you know, though the storm has hit us all. We're all in different sized vessels, you know, somebody in a steamliner and then somebody's just barely clinging to an inner tube or a piece of driftwood. Yes, that's right. That it like peels away the veneer, the, yeah, of like what we, what we like to imagine is happening. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the disparities preexisted the pandemic, but, but, but you, you can kind of now see with greater clarity how it exacerbates 
you know, the underlying issues of healthcare and mass incarceration and employment and yeah, you name it. Yeah. I just really, I'm so grateful for your vision of, um, interdependence and love, uh, that is not, um, that is not tidied up. I think it, it speaks to like the, the richness of what we are called to do, which is to, um, to figure out how to love each other more, <laughs> more, more than we imagined that category could, could hold. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, thank you for, for giving me so much more language for the embodiment of, uh, the, you just see these virtues and in homeboy industries and frankly in you there's such a tenderness and a compassion and a love of joy and i that i hope we can all embody thanks so much for doing this today there are two halves to the story of our world in my humble opinion i love lent because it allows me to understand one half our brokenness the reason why someone would have to bury teenagers as part of their job, the pain and suffering of the world, the realities frontline workers see every day. But then there's the other half, the beauty, the hope, the embodiment, the feeling people get when they start pulling for each other, the stretching of our horizons, the weird more than enoughness that love makes. Great pain, great hope two powerful realities that are ever before us that we must keep in the front of our eyes or else we fall into despair. What Father Boyle calls hope's lethal absence. So let's take a minute to see our reality clearly in the everydayness of our joys and sorrows, the people we miss, the loves we have, the dependence we resent, the joy of service the funerals, the weddings, the email. No, wait, there is no redeeming email. We live in the terrible, beautiful mystery of a world not yet redeemed, and a today that stretches in front of us with an invitation to see and to love still, to hurt and to try again, to stumble in the dusk, and to begin again in a new dawn. Oh, and before I go, if you still want to join me for the season of Lent, we can do this together. We need each other to orient ourselves to the light, to hunt for hope, to speak realistically, to make our way through. I'll be posting a video every morning on Instagram and Facebook, as well as sending out daily email reflections to help orient our day. I hope you'll join me. Visit katebowler.com slash Lent to sign up for free. Today's episode was made possible by our lovely partners, the Lilly Endowment, the Duke Endowment, and Duke Divinity School, who support our Faith in Media project. We are so grateful for their generosity and investment in what we do. And of course, my team, who I am obsessed with. Jessica Ritchie, our executive producer. Harriet Putman, our associate producer. Keith Weston, our sound designer. And the rest of the Everything Happens crew who make this project so much fun. Dan Wells, AJ Walton, Mary Jo Clancy, 
JJ Dickinson, Lana Stewart, Callie Dunlap, Aaron Lane, and Jeb and Sammy. Thank you. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>